Hey everybody, it's Kat, and I want to welcome you to Backstory Sessions. I'm joined today by my co-host, Matt. Hello everyone, how are you? And we have made it, Matt, to episode 29, I believe. Wow, is it 29 already? Jeez. I think so. so Time flying. I know. I mean, episode 29 is... uh, just one away from 30, so we're about to hit another milestone there. Yeah, yeah, we seem to be doing uh, pretty well with things. We're getting a lot more listens, and, uh, you know, the numbers are increasing, and that's the trend we like to see. It is indeed, and today we, uh, 29 is going to be a fine episode because uh, we have a really interesting guest. I, I can't wait to hear the backstory. Um you know, also, it's just as we tie our backstories of our writings into this, um, I think that's also a unique connection because, um, you know, uh, so we, we have really two two backstories of our writing that ties this together. Um, like a lot of the characters that you've written about um, or we've written about, depending, have... Um, had military backgrounds, some of the characters. Right, that's true. And um, so you also were in the military. I was. Yeah, so, you know, I was not, but um, I, I can only imagine uh, what that must be like. And, and to be in the military during wartime is something that, um, you know, I really cannot imagine. But I know that you've brought that to life through your characters so it must be a little easier for you um to imagine that kind of yeah i watched uh, a lot of john wayne movies when i was younger so you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah so Uh, yeah i mean i i wasn't involved in any wartime stuff uh you know basically when i was in it was just a a lot of yelling and uh (laughs) kind of how it went (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I can't imagine that part. <laughs> um, I can't imagine war. Um, but then the other unique part is, of this is it's not just your typical war story, but, um, you know, there's something that happens with children in this one. And um, I think that always brings a special element of pulling at the heartstrings. I mean, war is is terrible. It's like, I can't imagine it, but then to bring children into it just somehow seems like even more so cruel. Right, and, yeah, definitely. Um, so as I was researching about this, uh, you know, I was seeing some of the stories of, of the children that did make it out of Vietnam and they were um, doing DNA tests to, to um, some of them were able to find their biological parents that way and um, that of course ties into our um, the story the play that you wrote um, and that you might want to talk about that Union performed a little with the DNA uh, mystery of Corey and Mason. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, there was a DNA test that led to a uh, uh, flashback to a story of the parents and what happened to them, and then a... uh, Oh, let's say a less than stellar ending for the... uh, person who was thought to be the real parent <laughs> yeah so um, you know I probably in the real DNA cases of the you know of these babies that were were brought to the US it, I hope that it had a better outcome <laughs> um, but it was just an interesting connection I thought um, you know to something that you had imagined and then written about so, yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess. Uh, go, uh, ahead. go ahead. 
um, I was just going to say our, our guest is going to tell us all about it, and we'll probably see some more connections. But yeah, I think we should uh, give a little bit of a um, intro to what what that was going on at the time, and uh, then we'll talk to Al, our guest, and. Uh, Okay, you, you want to go ahead and... Um, oh, sure, leave it to me. ...get everybody up <laughs> to speed about that, and I'll introduce our guests afterwards. All right, so I believe the story goes, and Al, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Okay. Uh, um, and my neighbor has picked this time, this exact time to mow my lawn, so <laughs> I'll have to edit some of this out. But uh, anyway... Um, so in the beginning, it, so it was the end days of the Vietnam War, as I recall, and uh, um, I think it was April 3rd. Uh, Today, in fact. Yes, it, uh, Gerald Ford had authorized the uh, airlift of orphans out of Vietnam to the U.S., Europe, and I think... Uh, some of them ended up going to Australia as well. And uh, over the course of, I would say, well, I think it was about a month, uh, they, yeah, air, a lot of- they airlifted uh, approximately 3,500 kids. Um, uh, all total was about 130,000 people. Right. Uh, babies, or- orphans, kids. And youngsters and uh, sympathizers okay. out of Vietnam. Okay. Um, so uh, the the Operation Baby Lift was uh, pretty controversial from the start. Some people thought it was a um, a way to garner some sympathy and uh, you know give some credibility to the decisions that the um, uh, government was making about the war, which was unpopular, as everyone knows, and uh, uh, they said, you know, some people said it was a sort of a last, a last ditch effort to give some legitimacy to the decisions that were made and why the U.S. was there and that sort of thing. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know, um, but. Uh, you know that that's what a lot of people have written um, so uh, so Al you were in the Air Force is is that true yeah I was in the Air Force for uh, almost 22 years okay so and I will first of all I just first of all I just want to thank you for your service I appreciate that you're welcome definitely and and did you? Okay, so I so I have this question. Um, so at at the time you joined, the war ha, ha, was already going on, right? Yes, it was uh, in the early stages of the uh, of the Vietnam War. When I when I uh, and the reason I joined to keep from being drafted. <laughs> okay, so that was gonna be my next question. Is like, you know, what prompted you to join in the middle of the war or? in war period all right so you didn't want to be drafted um and you know that's kind of i think a foreign concept to us since we you know most of us or many of the listeners will not have grown up in a period of a draft so what was that like uh, for people your age to fear being drafted it was very hectic uh in my i grew up in uh, oakland california and they were drafting uh most of the kids uh out of out of oakland uh right out in fact uh, uh, a lot of the recruiters went actually went to the high school and would uh talk to the kids as they came out of class and when the school was over would uh, try to talk to them and try to entice them to uh come down to the recruiting office and so Every day we saw the recruiters trying to uh, um, get as many kids as they could. And then as the war started to escalate and they needed more bodies, 
then they they uh, you know they put a lot of pressure on us and they umped the uh, umped up the uh, uh, activity and uh, now it was uh, uh, commercials and programs and over the radio and the newspaper and you just couldn't signs on the streets and and billboards everywhere you go uncle sam wanted you you saw that everywhere and they tried to uh you know use that patriotism where uh, you know we need you to, to defend our country so uh a lot of kids they volunteered and but a lot of kids didn't want to go because uh then the word got back that uh, you know it was we were fighting the war and they wasn't sure what the causes were et cetera, et cetera. so they uh uh, they were uh, hesitant about going in. Then they realized they had to really uh, get more bodies. So that's why they uh, continued with the draft. And like I said, you know, a lot of kids in my area and my neighborhood got drafted. And uh, uh, I didn't want to go into the Army or the Marines because I knew I would be sent to Vietnam. So I said, well, if I joined the, uh, the Navy or the Air Force, uh, I would probably... Uh, stay out of Vietnam for a while or stay out of Vietnam completely but I was totally wrong <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> so I joined the Air Force to keep from being drafted thinking that uh, it would keep me out of Vietnam and and uh, then after I got to my basic training base uh, you fill out what is called a dream sheet where you put down what your next duty assignment where you want to go so i put down everything in england and in and, and in europe and italy and places like that and then uh, i said well that'll keep me out that's a long way from vietnam it'll keep me out of vietnam but that didn't work either so. <laughs> in the dream sheet i remember that <laughs> so did you go did you go to vietnam right after basic no no i um uh I, when I went to uh, technical school, they sent you to technical school after basic. And uh, because I had asthma as a kid, uh, they sent me up to northern part of uh, Texas, which was cold. And so I started having issues uh, working on airplanes outside. So they said, you need an inside job. So they cross-trained me, gave me a new duty uh, assignment, uh, and sent me right back to san antonio which was another base they have several bases in san antonio so i was a clerk for about three four years and uh, and then like i said when i fill out the dream sheet i said well i'll put out italy and all these other places and uh, three years later when they called me up to say we have an assignment i i was for sure going to europe someplace you know if not england uh, Italy, if not England, Greece, or Turkey, or someplace over there, and I was floored when they said Vietnam. Oh, I could not believe. It. Oh gosh, it's. I mean, I can't imagine getting that news. What was what was going on at that time? Um, like as far as the war, what? Well, the war. This was now '66, okay. and the war really uh, started to pick up we have started now uh putting in combat troops uh in the early years uh 61 62 63 somewhere along in there they, they didn't have as many they didn't have uh, probably uh any combat troops per se and then uh 63 64 65 they started putting combat troops in and helping the south vietnam uh, south vietnamese fight the north so that's when things really started to take off and uh, so we needed a lot of and that's when they started implementing all these bases in thailand and uh then uh, uh the president said well we'll bomb north vietnam so now they needed fighter escort to escort the b-52s to bomb north vietnam so they started stationing all of these uh 101s and then f-4s over in thailand and I basically ended up in Thailand after my uh, uh, just initial few days in Vietnam in the beginning. So what was that like? Uh, that was hectic. Uh, they sent me to Saigon. And, uh, and luckily, uh, because uh, I was in a support area, they said, well, we're going to move you from Saigon over to Thailand. 
And the guy said, uh, um, uh, uh, one of the sergeants over there says, you're probably going to like Thailand a lot better. And I said, well, I don't know about that. He said, well, at least they're not shooting at you. <laughs> <laughs> over here, they could be shooting at you because we had to carry uh, M16s. We had to carry sidearms everywhere we went, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, at night they would be bombing. You could hear the concussions of the bombs. So I was glad to go to Thailand, which like I said, he wasn't shooting at me. So that was, uh, that was pretty uh, easy in Thailand. The duty in Thailand was a lot better than what it was in, actually in Vietnam. So I ended up staying in Thailand for approximately uh, about nine, ten months. And then, <laughs> I'm afraid to ask, but what <laughs> happens next? No, then I volunteered to go to Japan. And they sent me to Japan. So I went to Japan for two years. And uh, uh, I was in northern part of Japan, a, a, a base called Misawa which is northern Honshu, which is about uh, 500 miles north of Tokyo. And I stayed up there in a support role. And we were supporting uh, Korea as well, South Korea. So we used to go temporary duty. They called it TDY, uh, temporary duty to Korea. So I went over to Korea many times in a support role. And after my two years in Japan, I went back to Texas. And then I wanted to get on flying status. And I volunteered for that. And then in uh, 70, I uh, put in the paperwork to get on flying status and, and I was approved. And then they sent me to technical school again for, uh, for training as a, what they call a load master. That's a person who actually supervises the loading of the cargo planes when they carry cargo or, or equipment or whatever. And so I did that for about three months, and then they sent me to Travis Air Force Base in California, and which was only about 50 miles from Oakland, where I grew up at. So that was great for me, because I now was back at back at home. I could see my my dad. You know, he was uh, getting older, and he needed my help, and so that was great. So I lived in uh, Fairfield, which is between Vallejo and Sacramento. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bay Area. And uh, and then we flew out of Travis uh, for six, seven, eight years to all over the Far East in support of the war. Um, every other, I would say, uh, at least I'll be gone about uh, about half the month, every month for the next six, seven years until I moved over to England in 76. And in 76, I moved to Mildenhall, England. And I got on 130s, that's a pro propeller-driven, smaller version of the cargo plane, because at Travis, they had the big C-5s and the 141s. The 141s are retired now, and now they use the C-17, but at that time, they had the C-141, which was the smaller version of the C-5. So for about a year and a half, almost two years, I was on 141s, and then I converted over to C-5s, and I spent uh, from, I guess, 73 all the way up to 76 on C-5s. I left, went to England, uh, 76 to 78. My dad got real sick in 78, and he asked for my help because I'm his only son. So I put in for a humanitarian reassignment, and they sent me right back to Travis Air Force Base two years later, right back to the same squadron that I had left. <laughs> So now I'm back in California, back at Travis, uh, near my dad, which was great for me. And I spent the remaining of my career back at Travis on C-5s. So, Al, uh, just to give everybody an idea, how big is a C-5? I mean, I, I know... C-5 a little bit larger than a 747. Okay, and it will hold uh, quite a lot of uh, material, is it? Yes, it, it was built for outsized cargo, which would hold big tractors and uh, bulldozers and tanks and uh, large items that you cannot put on a smaller 141 or a C-130. And weight-wise, it holds a lot more weight than any of the other uh, smaller <laughs> cargo planes. So right. it was actually built for outsized cargo. Yeah, I remember when I 
I'm from New York originally and uh, at Stewart Air Force, <coughs> excuse me, Stewart Air Force Base in uh, uh, New York, they had a National Guard group that flew C-5s out of there. And I remember they were just so big. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You look at them, you say, how could something that big fly? But it had a lot of power and a lot of capabilities. And yeah. air to refueling, so we were fueled in the air. Uh, on another uh, um, story, you know, we flew, we set a record at the time, flying uh, 16, uh, 15 straight hours from uh, all the way to Oman, Jordan, from Sacramento, uh, nonstop, and we had two air refuelings in the air. Wow. So this, let me go to this part that's like, this is the, I believe you said the 46th anniversary. Uh, and actually today, April the 3rd, uh, which is kind of ironic that we're talking about this, but, um, you know, the, the Operation Baby Lift. So is that a C5? Did I read that right? Or uh, Yes, yes, it was. And no. Uh, what happened was uh, originally uh, when the president gave the word, uh, they sent two C-5s from Travis uh, to uh, Vietnam and uh, one left on a Tuesday and another one left on a Thursday. I was scheduled on the mission to leave on that Thursday. There was a guy that got sick on the Tuesday flight and they had to replace him. So they start calling around looking for a replacement. And uh, I had went to the store. And by the time I got back and called the squadron, they had already replaced the guy. Uh, so I left on that Thursday. And when that plane who left on Tuesday got to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, they decided that they was going to go in and pick up the kids. And then we were we were one stop behind him because we left two days later on a Thursday. So when we got to Clark, he was already uh, on his way into Saigon, but because the plane is so big, they didn't want two planes on the ground at the same time. So they made us wait until he got there, got loaded and was on his way out before they gave us the word to depart Clark to go in and get a lot more kids. And we had just taken off we was no more than 30 minutes out and they gave us a message to turn around and go back to Clark because they had an accident. So we turned around, went back to Clark. And when we got on the ground then we found out that the C-5 had crashed, he had something like 300 people on board and uh, they had a rapid decompression of the ramp and which they initially thought it was a bomb, a sabotage, but it come to find out it was a, rapid decompression that blew off the back end. So anyway, they they uh, they grounded the C-5 fleet. So my flight, when I'm back at Clark that got grounded or suspended, then they canceled all of the C-5s and they didn't want to use the C-5s anymore because they wasn't sure of the capability because uh, they, uh, they knew that the ramps uh, uh, now was suspect of uh, having issues, so they started using C-141s, C-130s, helicopters, and anything else that would fly to get the kids out. So initially, like I said, it was only two or three C-5s that was scheduled, but after the first one crashed, they canceled the C-5 fleets, and they started using just the smaller C-141s, uh, C C-130s, and helicopters, and whatever else they could find to fly out. So what was the idea for using this C-5 because it would hold so many kids or? Yes, because you could put 73 upstairs in regular airline seats. The downstairs area, you could turn the rolls over and make it a flat surface and you could put uh, as probably thousands of kids if you'd bring them in and set them down and, you know, and set them on the floor. So you can just get just huge numbers out that way. And that's what they did uh, because they didn't have actually seats. Uh, air, they, they have the capability of putting the airline seats downstairs, but they hardly ever use that capability. Uh, so they would uh, 
they just brought the kids in, set them on the floor and tied them down with straps and, uh, and uh, got as many as they could to get them out, you know, because they wanted to get as many out as they could as fast as they could. And if I understand it right, so the people on the the cargo part or the bottom part, those are mainly the ones that got killed? Yes, because when the C-5, uh, when the ramp blew off, there were several, there was uh, so many of them that went from the, the, uh, the, uh, the front of the plane to the back, those in the back, uh, were actually sucked out because when the ramp blew off, it was a rapid decompression and it sucked, uh, I, I would say four or five kids out, you know, swept them out midair. And a couple of buddy of mine got swept out uh, and he, you know, they all landed in the Indian ocean. And, and then when this, uh, when the ramp blew off, it went up into the ailerons, the tail section and tore off part of the tail sections and severed the uh, hydraulic lines. So now the pilot doesn't have steering capability, can't control the plane. All he can use is the engine thrust to uh, control the plane. So he tried, he turned around, uh, put the landing gear down and headed back to Tonsonute to land. But because he didn't have a, a full capability of the airplane and he did his best, uh, it landed short in a rice field, rice paddy. And when it landed, it uh, just tore off the bottom of the plane and everybody who was sitting downstairs, not everybody, but most of them were, uh, uh, did not survive. And when the plane slid along the ground, it just ripped off the landing gear, the bottom part of the plane. It went airborne again. It flew for another 60, 80, 90 feet and then landed in another uh, rice rice paddy on the other side of the, of the field and uh, then it started to break up and it broke up into three pieces and everybody basically upstairs was, uh, was safe because they was in airline seats, which had seat belts. Mm -hmm. That's a crazy well, story. I, so, I mean, how, how do you deal with, with that and it being children and orphans that you're trying to, take to a you know a new life and a tragedy like this happens on day one of the you know was there ever consideration that that would be the end that of this you know operation or no it uh, they you know they they were sad and uh, but something you know they just had so many kids so many people that they had to get out you know they just it's um you know, this bit they bit they lift and said, you know, three hundred is you know is minute compared to thousands, one hundred and thirty thousand that needed to get out. You know, so they just went on with whatever the capability they had, and and the C one forty ones and the one thirties and the helicopters and whatever aircraft they used, you know, did a fine job, a great job of getting the rest of them out. So they just, uh, you know, it was you know, it was sad to lose that that you know. Uh, a hundred or so kids and a couple of my crew member buddies that I work with every day. Sure. I was sad to, to, you know, cause I, you know, one guy, I knew his family. I used to hang out with his family and, you know, and another guy, and I, and I saw these people, you know, at least uh, two, three times a month, at least, you know, so it was sad, but that that's the war, you know, and you're here today and, you know, and you might not be here tomorrow. You just have to deal with it. You just have to keep going. And you just have to, like I say, just pull up your bootstraps and and try to do your job. And so that 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 was the you know if you're doing you're concentrating on your job, you won't be concentrating on you know people that you lost, you know. So we just kept going because we knew we had to get the rest of them out somehow. So you there's a story that you have about a mother, I guess. Yes, yes. When the C when the C when the C five crashed, they grounded the C five. So because I I uh, load masters uh, at back then were dual qualified, and I had just got off of the one forty ones a couple years earlier. So they attached me to a one forty one crew, 
And I left Clark on a 141 crew, went into Saigon, and uh, picked up uh, the first day. We picked up 78 kids uh, uh, and headed, took them back to Clark. And that was, uh, it was using so many aircraft that it was just like a Grand Central Station. The planes were flying in, flying out. You know, it's surprising they didn't have accidents. You know, planes running in each other. They had so many planes coming and going. So uh, we dropped off the first 78 the first day. And then the second day, we was back at it again. And when I got to Saigon the second day, uh, now the Viet Cong was closing in on uh, Saigon, was closing in on one of the other bases. Well, uh, Benoit was another base about 20 miles away. And you can actually hear them, the concussions of the bomb hitting the ground and feeling the ground shake. And uh, things were getting a lot more hectic. So they didn't want us to turn off the engines because we might have to make, uh, we might have to leave right away. So uh, as we got there, we taxied in, kept the engines running, and they lowered the ramp. And you could see the, the hundreds of people in line, you know, and now it's like a mass scramble. And uh, and it was just loading as many planes as they could, as fast as they could, and just bringing the people out in hordes, you know, just get them on the plane, get them out, you know, time down on the floor. Don't even worry about safety. You know, safety is always paramount, but you had to get these people out. And so I'm standing out there. Uh, they, because they kept the engines running, we had to stand by the, the engines because we didn't want nobody walking near the thrust of the engines. So I'm out on headset and I'm watching. Uh, I'm on one side and a friend of mine is on the other side. The other crew members on the other side and on headset. And I'm watching the crowd as the people are uh, coming up to the back of the plane to uh, walk on the uh, over the ramp into the plane. And as I'm as I'm watching. I can see this lady, she's in over there in a in line, and she just took off running out of the line, and she's heading towards the back of the plane. And I noticed that she's carrying something. So I said to myself, I said, oh, when she gets up to the back of the plane because she broke the line, you know, all they're going to do is turn her around and send her back. Well, she got about halfway up to the plane, and all of a sudden she looked, and she saw me standing there. And she just veered over to me and ran up to me. And then, you know, I told my buddy, I said, someone is running up. He said, be careful, you know, because they had, you know, they had saboteurs in, in you know, uh, you didn't know who these people were. And I noticed she was carrying something, but I, but I couldn't tell what it was in the beginning until she got closer. And as she got closer, uh, I can see she's holding something. So I told my buddy, I said, she got something in a, she got some kind of package. She said, be careful. I said, yeah, okay. And at that time, we didn't carry sidearms. We do, you know, a day later gave us sidearms to carry, but then we didn't. So, um, so I, I wasn't armed or anything. So I'm very, ca uh, you know, cautious of what's going to happen. This lady's coming up to me running. And then I realized that it's not a package. It's a, it's a baby she had. And she runs up to me and she tries to give me her baby. She, you know, thrusts it out in her arms and tries to give it to me. And I'm trying to tell her, you know, I couldn't speak Vietnamese and she couldn't speak English. So I threw my hands up in the air, you know, and I tried to, you know, put my hands up and shake my hands, let her know that I couldn't take this baby, you know, and she's crying and sobbing and she's, you know, and handing me the baby like, here, here, take it, take it, take it, please take it, you know. And I, and I couldn't take it, you know, so I'm backing away. And as I'm backing away, she's coming forward. And then she, I guess, realized that, that she's that I'm not going to take it. So she veers, she turns around and runs back, you know, and and I see her run all the way back into the line. And then he put her all the way in the back of the line. Wow. So I said, oh, my God. And then as we get the people on board and we took another 82 out. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I said, well, I could have took the lady to the back end of the plane to the Red Cross or whoever the, the people who was loading the plane. You know, the uh, the civilian Red Cross workers who was um, marshalling the load. I said, I probably could have took her back there and maybe they could have let her on. But at that time, you know, uh, I was just thinking about safety. I didn't want nobody running into back, uh, you know, running up to the engines where they could have got uh, hurt real bad or something like that, you know. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. And so we uh, we got, like I say, 82 on board, closed the door. And it was no matter of 20 minutes, we were, you know, in and out. And we took them and we couldn't, uh, when we took off, we had to go to Kadena, Okinawa. Kadena Air Force Base is a uh, part of Japan, Okinawa. And uh, because uh, Clark Air Base in the Philippines was so saturated. And like you said, it was taking them everywhere. They was taking them to uh, Bangkok. They was taking them to Australia. They was taking them anywhere they can get them. Just get them out of Vietnam. Right. So were, were these babies, uh, uh, I mean, so if you would have taken her baby, it would have been just to take somewhere and then be adopted. Um, sure. So- she would have been making sure the baby had a life um, and she was willing to do that. Yeah, she was just willing to give up her child just to get her to get her out, uh, to get the baby out. And like I said, they ended up in all of these bases and and then they, I guess, put them up for adoption. And, uh, um, you know, I don't know if any of them was ever re, uh, united or reunited with their parents. I, I don't know. There have there have been some from what I read. I know there was a class action lawsuit that went on, and they tried to get the government to reunite some of the kids with uh, their parents. Um, apparently, the story was that uh, some of the parents, especially the poor ones in Vietnam, would drop their kids off at an orphanage because they couldn't take care of them. Um, uh-huh. But they would go see them, and you know, it was sort of like a visitation kind of thing. And right. uh, when the, uh, I guess when the airlift started, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the kids were taken to, you know, get on the planes and stuff. And um, you know, during some of the talks with the people who were taking care of them, I mean. These kids were, you know, uh, from what I gather, they were from, you know, like um, a little less than a year old to probably sure know, later. Right. They were, they were infants, babies and infants. Hey. And what's ironic is today I live I live here in Las Vegas. I go down, me and my wife uh, likes uh, the Viet- the Vietnamese soup, so we go down to a Vietnamese restaurant, and one of the waiters down there was one of the babies that got out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. That's crazy. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, anyway, it was unpopular, apparently, because some of the kids were not orphans, um, or the, it was revealed that they had, you know, relatives in Vietnam um sure it was uh it was uh you know just a mad scramble and and if you had money or if you had connections or if you had people that you knew you know uh like like you said it was only supposed to be orphans and babies but anybody you know could uh, get ahead of the, of the line and and find a way to get out and they did you know they did right yeah. so I remember pictures of like uh, people climbing on the helicopters, uh, you know, in the last days, uh, trying to get out, and um, just the desperation that some people had in trying right. to flee what was gonna, you know, what was coming. I guess. And I can. And not- I, I have a picture that I post on Facebook that that shows a, a couple of the kids in line with the. Uh, uh, with the uh, uh, the ladies holding the babies, and and it's right near the nose of a uh, C-141. That's from McCord because McCord is the second, the sixty second uh, airlift wing back then. I don't, you know, they have changed the names over right. the years. Um, so I send that picture because, like you said, uh, today is the beginning of the forty sixth anniversary, and our C five crashed on the fourth of April. And, uh, uh, you know, I could have been on that plane, you know, some, some place, um, but I got lucky. So I don't know. I don't know if I'd be here today if I'd have got that on that Tuesday flight. Yeah. That, that's, uh, one of those strange stories of fate, you know, you never know. That's, that's really crazy. Well, I mean, look (laughs) at the, 
you know, how they must feel like the people on the bottom of the plane versus the ones, you know, even of the one that crashed, like just the difference between being on the top or the bottom. Yeah, just, just, well, I, you know, I guess they loaded the bottom. I mean, they loaded the top first because you had to go up a ladder to get to the top. And at that time, they didn't have the tall, uh, I don't think they were using the tall stairs, uh, portable stairs, outside stairs. So you had to actually climb the stairs to the what is called the troop compartment to go from the inside of the plane all the way up to the car, to the troop compartment, which is upstairs. It's a long, tall ladder. And uh, uh, so I'm not sure what they were using at that particular time. Uh, because, like I said, uh, you know, we uh, after the C-5 crashed and uh, they grounded the rest of the C-5 fleet and no more C-5s was actually used for the for the airlift. So um, when a- after. So how many how many trips total did you make to bring people out? Do you know? I, I made three trips, three trips total. Okay, and all those were kids, or was it a mix? All of... those were kids. All those were babies, and uh, I think the uh, the oldest one I saw was maybe about six. Yeah, six okay. or seven, but they were all babies, you know, crying babies. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, who went with? Like, who was holding they, them? Or they, they had, they had, they had, they had. I guess they had a a chaperone for about uh, eight or nine, maybe ten people. Uh, because it was probably about uh, uh, 20, well, I guess about 10 chaperones on the plane. And they were Red Cross workers. They were uh, relatives of, uh, of family members, relatives of the military. Uh, some of them were Vietnamese uh, women, uh, but mostly Americans, you know, who were actually doing the chaperoning. And some of them were actually nurses, military nurses, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the babies were still in uh, still in. They put them in these little, uh, you know, uh, what do you call these, uh, bassinet type things, you know. Right. I I, I had seen that. Oh, so there was a uh, seven forty seven that somebody had chartered to go in and bring kids out as well. Uh huh. I saw there was a, a businessman in somewhere. I don't remember exactly where he was from, but he had chartered a seven forty seven to. Uh, fly over there and bring kids out and they had right. they were putting them in like cardboard boxes with blankets in them and things like that to sure yeah. yeah i saw that picture as well yeah so what was the government uh the vietnamese government um were they cooperative at all with uh them? yeah but they were trying to get out themselves you know they uh you know they knew that the war was uh was coming to an end, and they knew that if they didn't get out, uh, they would be uh, captured and tortured, and some of them would probably be executed. So they were, they wasn't worried about the orphans. They was just trying to get their 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 families out. So that that was their main goal. Wow. You would think it would be the, you know, they would be concerned. Well, I, you know, I guess some of them was concerned, but the majority of them was, you know, looking out for themselves. Yeah, of course. Yeah, when push comes to shove, you know, you look out for your own family, you know. So, so did, were you involved in any of the other flights to just, you know, to bring people out? Uh, no. Uh, uh, later on, well, before that, uh, you know, we had went into uh, Vietnam several times and we brought out some people, but, but it was mainly GIs. Right. Uh, not, not babies. Because we, you know... Uh, uh, I had been going in, in and out of Vietnam since 1971, uh, first on the 141 and then on the C-5, uh, taking equipment, tanks. Uh, we took a couple of, uh, of big tanks into Da Nang, which is on the coast of Vietnam. Right. Uh, uh, I, was, I was involved in that. And believe it or not, I got to fly Bob Hope around uh, when he went uh, did one of his USO tours. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we took him from Saigon up to a place called K Shaw, and uh, they wouldn't let us, they wouldn't let us stay there and watch the show because the plane was so, you know, at the time was a 141, so they made us leave. So, but anyway, we got to take him and this band of renowned Les Brown. Right, band yeah. of renowned. 
Did you... And I got his aut- I had his autograph, and I kept it for years, and I don't know what happened to it. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So I was in and out of Vietnam so many times, you know, so many times. So, uh, uh, and, and one of the reasons is because, uh, uh, you know, as a military person, if you go to uh, Vietnamese airspace at the end of the month, you can it was tax free for your taxes. So uh-huh. we would want to go the end of the month and stay over until the first of the next month. And that way we get that one month free and then the next month free for taxes <laughs> so we tried to uh, schedule our trips so we'd go to the you know be be over in vietnam airspace uh you know and get those two months for taxes for free there's always an angle <laughs> always an angle right so what were the people like the people the people were friendly uh most of them were friendly uh, especially the ones uh uh, that catered to Americans. Now you had some that uh, uh, didn't like Americans, and you wasn't sure. You know, even even the kids. You know, when you walked around, you wasn't too sure of uh, uh, of uh, uh, becoming friends with anyone because uh, you didn't you didn't know because there was so much infiltration of the the Viet Cong down there. You know, you didn't know who you was dealing with. You know, and they had a lot of bombings downtown. Uh, uh, roadside bombings, uh, restaurant type bombings, uh, suicide type bombings, and a lot of protesters. I saw a, uh, a one of those monks set himself on fire on a street corner. You know? Jeez. Right, and I was, oh man, I was that was a bad sight. You know, I when I saw imagine. that. Yeah, how could someone set himself on fire? But anyway, he did, wow. and uh, so you just couldn't be sure, but. And and for the most part, the people were friendly. So you came back to the States a lot. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Every uh, I came back to the States uh, and then a week or so later, I'm back over there in the Far East, back over in the Philippines, back over in uh, in Vietnam, back over in Thailand, back over in Japan. We made we made the circuit. Then we came back to Travis. I stay I would stay home a week, two weeks, three weeks. And then we would go on another mission. So, so you have quite a few air miles. <laughs> oh yeah, I got uh, close to ten thousand flight hours uh, combined with the three airplanes. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, were you were you aware? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kat. No, you go ahead. All right. So, were you aware? I mean, because you were back and forth all the time. Um, were you aware of like the, you know, the anti-war uh, protests and things that were going on in the U.S. at the time? Well, sure, because at Travis, we had, uh, was the lady Jane Fonda? Yeah. Uh, she would be at the base, at the front gates, front gates of the Travis Air Force Base protesting. Ah, uh, you know? okay. And wow. because, because, because we were close to Cal Berkeley, you know, which was only 50, 60 miles away, a lot of the students would be up there you know, and doing the later part of the war, protesting on a daily basis. Yeah, that's crazy. And then, you know, my dad lived in <laughs> Oakland, so I would go down to, you know, when I was at home, go down and see him. So, you know, I would get all the uh, protests and uh, and riffraff from my relatives, you know, who lived in who lived in Oakland, lived in San Francisco, lived in the whole Bay Area, you know, so. Uh, you know, they, they treated the military real bad, uh, especially the GIs coming home, you know. Right. No respect at all. Yeah, I, I remember hearing a lot of that. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to be, uh, you know, for the Vietnam War especially, it seems to be more prevalent. Um, you know, people were just unhappy about that whole thing and... Uh, Sure, because a lot of these young people, these young men were, you know, losing their lives. 58,000 of us did not come back. Right, yeah. I, I, when I was in, in D.C., I did go to the uh, memorial, and uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty impressive, the pretty, number of Pretty names. impressive. Yeah, I was there uh, uh, about 10 years ago, and my, my uh, two buddies who were killed, they're on the wall, so I... 
you know, put a piece of paper and, you know, and uh, we call it when you uh, scratch their names, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, uh, they're on the wall. So, yeah. So, it's so a sad thing. We, we just did a podcast recently about PTSD. Um, did you... Did you suffer from PTSD, or do you? Uh, I, I, it takes me a long time to go to sleep at night. Uh, I sit there and I, I think about a lot of the things going on, and not only Vietnam, but you know, over the 22 years I was involved in so much thing, different things. You know, right. I could, I could talk to you guys for a week about everything that uh, what happened to me over the, I over the imagine. years and flying around the world. So, but I really, I don't think I have P, uh, PTSD. Uh, now, I do have sleep acne. You know, I sleep with a mask. Uh, right, yeah. I snore a lot. Um, uh, I had a kidney transplant uh, a couple of years ago, uh, three years ago. Uh, and I might have been in, exposed to Agent Orange, but I can't make the connection because it's, it, uh, when I got the transplant, the doctor said it wasn't cancer. Uh, it was just my gave out, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't, um, you know, I, I haven't been to the doctor uh, and talked about PS, uh, PSTT. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because, I, you know, it seems like, uh, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of people who have been in, combat situations or been involved in the military and really intense situations like you know the airlift and you know just a lot of different mm -hmm. things uh do Being suffer from ptsd fire. <laughs> I mean. right right yeah, yeah. I, I felt the bombs i felt the concussions i've been shot at uh uh, uh several times uh, uh, you know i saw the death and destruction I saw the grief on their faces. I saw the jubilation when they got out. Yeah. You know, the despair. I saw all of that, and you know, I you know, I just uh, credited to being a war. You know, that's what happens in a war. Right. You know, I guess I'm a realist rather than the uh, you know something that we had to do. We had to get these people out somehow. <laughs> you know, so you just uh, like I say, grit your teeth and just keep going. Yeah. So, so you taught um, political science. Yeah, I uh, when I got out of the military, I I worked I worked for Lockheed for ten years, and that's another story because we should teach the uh, the astronauts, and I taught some of the astronauts who was on the Challenger accident. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, NASA, we was on a NASA contract, so that's another story. But anyway, I I wanted to uh, move to Vegas uh, because the uh it was getting so expensive in the bay area so i moved to vegas and uh started teaching uh, school and taught at uh political science uh for about 12 years political science in nevada government uh, and uh i did that up to my uh, kidney operation uh, and then after that i just really retired so are, are you going to write a book? Yeah, I wrote a book. It's called My Unbelievable Journey. Wow. <laughs> is that, a, is that yeah. available on Amazon? or? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. I can send you the website to it right now if you like. It's, uh, um, send, just send that my, to Kat. Okay, My Unbelievable Journey, the story of an Air Force Air Crewman. That's the uh, title and, and subtitle. You definitely had a... Definitely had an interesting career. <laughs> sure, I've I've had three different careers uh, as I'm thinking about it: the Air Force, uh, Lockheed, and then uh, as a professor. You know, I taught school for the last twelve years, and probably would still be teaching if I hadn't uh, had the kidney operation because I, I'm trying to stay busy. You know, yeah, I'm one of the busy types that uh, you know I hate watching TV and other than sports and, right. and the news, you know, so yeah, Cat, keeps me going. Cat's a, Cat's a retired teacher as well. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I was just curious as to um, your experience in the military. 
um, do you think that made you a, a better political science teacher because sure. you experienced it firsthand? Sure, it gave me insight to <laughs> what really happened compared to what they put in these books. <laughs> right. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> students really um, were very engaged with you as well because. Sure. Of- I tell them, I said, uh, this is what it is in the book, but this what really happened <laughs> to me and what I saw and what I experienced and what I went through, but I'm going to have to test you on what's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the curriculum calls for. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess my one last question I have is, um, what do you hope that, um, is learned from our listeners um, about the history of Vietnam, and you know what do you what do you hope that they take away from your story? Well, I hope they take away that it's something that we should never forget. This is a part of history that happened, uh, just like uh, any of the other wars, and uh, a small part of the Vietnam. Uh, war you know that war lasted for 12 years 58,000 of us did not come back so it's something that we should never forget and we should always honor you know the memory of uh vietnam and you know a lot of kids lost their lives not even know what they were fighting for you know why they were there in the first place you know so we want to keep this in their memory you know and celebrate um not celebrate their deaths, but don't let them ever forget that this happened. You know, kids nowadays, you know, they uh, they heard about Vietnam, but they don't know the real story. So, so my, my last question for you is, uh, you've done a lot of different things, been a lot of places and seen a lot of things. Um, so I guess my question is, like, would you do it all again? Yes, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would do it in a heartbeat. The only thing I would do different is I would be I would finish college first, go in the military as an officer, okay, rather than as an enlisted person, right? Because you you make more money and you yeah. get promoted <laughs> a lot quicker, you know, and you get to order people around, you know? right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody listening out there, that's some good advice for you. So that's the only thing I would do different, but I wouldn't change. Uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Okay. That's awesome. So, um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Okay, they can uh, uh, hit me up on Facebook if they like. Albert Monroe on Facebook. Okay. Uh, I have a website. Uh, I can send you the website. All right. If they want to. If they want to order the book, like I said, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, the publisher is Arthur House. Um, okay, we'll we'll post and, those links for you. And uh, for those who are in, and right now there's a story that just came out in the uh, Travis Air Force Base uh, Tailwind, which is a military paper that comes out monthly. A story just came out yesterday in the Travis Air Force Base Tailwind. That's the base newspaper. And if they're in the Las Vegas area, uh, on the 17th of this month, I'm going to be having a book showing out at the base. Oh, That's awesome. That's the Nellis Air Force Base. But the only problem is I don't know if everybody can get on the base. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> now, I do plan to... Uh, have a book showing down at Barnes and Noble one of these days when this COVID thing gets uh, finally uh, uh, settled. Right. Yeah. We we were in the same boat with you on that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Working with Barnes and Noble to get our book in their store, but uh, right now they're doing virtual um, virtual author readings and signings and things like that. So. Right. Now there's a uh, another author, a local author here named Stephen Murray. He wrote a couple of mystery novels. He just uh, uh, um, um, promoted uh, my book in his. Uh, he does a monthly newsletter, 
and it just came out the other day. I saw it. He was promoting my book, so I'm happy about that. Awesome. I'm trying to pick up as much traction as I can. I'm trying to make the New York bestseller list, but, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you got to know somebody, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, Uh, so uh, any... Any last thoughts, Al? Uh, no. Uh, I have, like I said, I have other stories to tell. I was involved in the Iranian, uh, the Iran uh, evacuation when the hostages got taken. Wow! If if they would have got on the plane, they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been taken into captivity. So that's another story. The Israeli Israeli Egyptian Syrian war. I was involved with that. Uh, I uh, was involved with the, uh, 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 what was that? Uh, uh, I can't think of the name now. Um, oh, taking cruise missiles to uh, to Europe a few uh, few years ago when they was putting uh, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles uh, in, in, into Europe. Right. Uh, I was involved with that. I was involved with several other events. I made a whole list of different things. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, uh, and and I was um, uh, a couple things which uh, which was funny. I was um, I, I was assigned a million dollars in gold bullion and took it to Hawaii. You know, <laughs> yeah, I actually reached down and touched the gold. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm. Just- I'm just curious. You've been involved in, you know, in some way in a lot of like really high level events throughout history. I mean, you know, Vietnam War and the, you know some of the things that happened during the war, and you know, flying Bob, yeah, flying Bob Hope around, and you know, things like that. I mean, do you, like how like that must be really like when you look back on it, you must be like, holy crap. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I looked back on it and I said, man, I was involved in all this stuff, you know. And I, like I said, I was at the right place at the right time and the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <true. laughs> well, uh, yeah. yeah. We, so, so we've really enjoyed talking to you and having you on. Um, I, I know there's, you know, probably another episode here that we could do with you at a later sure. date. And Call me up anytime. All right, we appreciate that. So, yeah. as uh, Kat, any other last thoughts? No, I just want to say again, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. Um, it's it's been really, really enjoyable to to hear um, the backstories to to you and the life you've led. Yeah, you get. You get the true story of what actually happened, and uh, you know, from a air crew air crewman's perspective, I was there on the ground in harm's way, and a lot of these events, you know, a lot of these evacuations. Not only that, but humanitarian, special, uh, classified. I was involved in a spy encounter where we were actually tracked by by spies, <laughs> Russian spies. Wow. I was. <laughs> I was. Uh, we took. Uh, we supported the embassy in Poland, so we went behind the Iron Curtain when the Iron Curtain was up, you know, and supported that. Wow. So a lot of different things. I was uh, involved in paratrooper where a paratrooper actually was uh, was killed. Uh, didn't survive on my plane. He tried. He jumped out, and his parachute did not open. And we tried to get him back in. And he didn't survive. It was 2,000 troopers jumping that day. And it just happened to be on my plane that it happened. But uh, over the course of the uh, two-day, three-day event, you know, there were several other casualties, but one of them was on my plane. So, you know, that that haunts me sometime. I think about that at night. Yeah. Uh, so you, you're talking about PSTD, you know. I, I really... You know, I think about these things, you know, before I actually fall asleep sometimes. So yeah. Maybe I do have it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as always, if you have any, uh, this is my closing spiel, Al, so just bear with me for a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I do have one question. Sure. W- when is this going to be aired or when when can I uh, hear it? Uh, 
we're probably two probably two weeks is that true cat um two to three weeks so oh, we'll we'll let you know definitely most okay. two sundays yeah we have tomorrow. we have one for this sunday we have one for next sunday so you'll be the following sunday okay and this is aired over what um so podbean um any place almost that you listen to podcasts. Yeah, we're uh-huh. we're like poop all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I uh, can, um, so, uh, yeah, as always, if you have questions, concerns, comments, or criticisms, especially the criticisms, you can send those to cat at iwriteplays at outlook.com. Or if you want to tell me how much you love the episode, uh, you can contact me at Backstory sessions at gmail.com or matt at level11ventures.com. And can you, can you send me that, uh, those links again? Sure. Sure. Yes, definitely will send you the link as soon as um, it normally posts at nine o'clock on Sunday evening. So, okay. Uh, our time. So, six year time, uh, we'll send the link. Okay. And if I send you the link to my book, can you, uh, Yes. yes, and if, uh, if you have the photo also, the yeah. one... Um, yes, I have the photo. I'll send that to you. Yes, and we can add that as well when we promote the episode. Yeah, it's a nice color picture of me. Okay. <laughs> as a no problem. Maybe 30 years ago. <laughs> that's okay. Um, you know, we, we want to capture everything, so that's good. All right, and... And with that, we are going to close out this episode, and uh, we we will talk to you all soon.